Best Book Bits podcast brings you Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance, author of nine bestsellers out of 13 books, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold in Abundance, and his work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into 40 languages. Stephen, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to be with you. No worries. Now, for my audience that uh, don't know who you are, take us back to your early years. Where did you study, and uh, did you study back in the day? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I, I studied English and creative writing as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, and I have a master's in creative writing as well. My undergraduate focus was on poetry, believe it or not, and my graduate focus was on uh, fiction writing. And what was um, what was some of your first jobs or gigs when you uh, when you finished school? Well, I was a bartender for. I started out my career as a journalist, so right after grad school, um, I mean, I you know I've had a million shitty jobs, every every bad job you could possibly imagine. Um, along the way, but I was a bartender through college and grad school and I came out of grad school and I was a bartender and I was starting my career as a journalist, um, right out of, sort of right out of grad school. And that was about it. I bartended and, uh, like sort of built up my journalism career and, and, and wrote my first book until I was about 27. Then I've been writing books and working as a journalist or, you know, a bunch of other things since then. But, uh, that was sort of the end of the, the shitty jobs. So I love tending bar. Yeah, awesome. What was the uh, what was your first book that you wrote and released, and first, what was it about? My first book is a novel uh, called "The Angle Quickest for Flight." It came out, let's say, in ninety six, ninety seven, maybe earlier. Um, it was, uh, and it was about. <laughs> it was. I was, I was working with a, like a metafiction style. I was very, very influenced by Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, writers like that. And I was trying to do essentially what would you, what today we would say it was like the Da Vinci Code 15 years earlier. I, it was a book about five people trying to break into the Vatican secret archives to steal back a book that had been stolen in the 13th century. And it was really a, a book that asked questions about Long before there was a kind of this fantasy movement and stuff that's going on now, what would happen if you ended up with actual superpowers in this world? That those kinds of those kinds of questions were being poked at it. So that was my first novel, and then I switched away from fiction into nonfiction for the next twelve books, I believe, and then went back to fiction fairly recently and have another uh, novel coming out next month. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, well, I want to deep dive into sort of some of the nonfiction books, and yeah, we can talk about the new book coming out soon as well. But yeah, take us back to yeah, over twenty years you've been studying sort of elite athletes, artists, CEOs, scientists, revealing the secrets of success. It's a passion of mine too. I've wrote a book called Success in Fifty Steps and researched five hundred books to find out you know what does make people successful. So yeah, take us back to your early days on researching that field and and how did it come about that you were studying success? Started out. Uh... When I was an early journalist, two things were re journalism is this amazing right career. You get to basically go get paid to learn about things you're curious about. I was covering three beats really. I covered um, environmental topics, animal rights topics, those sorts of issues. 
Um, I was really interested in neuroscience, especially back in the 90s, because behavioral neuroscience, which is sort of the neuroscience of how we actually work in human behavior, was just becoming a real field. So there was, you know, groundbreaking insights into things like emotions and you know, just da daily experiences. Um, that was interesting to me from a peak performance perspective, which did catch my attention because I was also covering action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, and the like. And if you know anything about the history of action sports in the 1990s, it's often called the so-called era of impossible, where more impossible feats, things that had never been done before and were believed never possible, not going to ever be done, got done than ever before. And so it was like having a front row seat at this amazing magic show. And I was, it was, you know, it was interesting because at the time I was splitting my time between living in San Francisco and living in uh, Palisades Tahoe and uh, what was then Squaw Valley. And that, which was sort of the, one of the birthplaces of, of the action sports movement in America. And I always say, it's one thing, you know what I mean? When you see somebody do something impossible on a, on a TV screen, you watch a surfer on a hundred foot wave or that sort of thing. But when you go out drinking with your friends on Friday night and then Saturday night, you go skiing with these same group of people and you go into the mountains and then your buddy does something that has been for all of recorded history, not possible. And you see it, it's a very different feeling. So I was sort of obsessed with, well, how were they doing the impossible? Where was this coming from? Um, and I was really interested in using neuroscience and the tools of neuroscience to try to answer those questions. I was less interested in psychology. And the way I always sort of talk about that is it's not that psychology isn't useful. I think it's an incredibly useful science, but most of the time it's metaphorical. And if you want something that is reliable, repeatable, works for everybody that's mechanistic, you want neurobiology. So I got really interested back then in the neurobiology of peak human performance and specifically around the question of what does it take to do the impossible? And that question of what does it take to do the impossible became my central focus for a very long time. I looked at it in sports and athletics, as you pointed out. Um, I then took the question into science and technology. So a bunch of my books, um, Tomorrowland, for example, Tomorrowland is a 25 year investigation into those uh, points in history when sci-fi ideas, bionics, genetic engineering, private space travel, et cetera, et cetera, turned into science fact. And so that was my beat as a reporter for years. I was in the room when those things happened always asking the question of what, like, what the hell is going on? Where is this coming from? How does it work? And, you know, eventually this led me to flow and the idea of flow is the, you know, this technical word for an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. It's, you know, it's sort of the secret to ultimate human performance. And that became the basis of a lot of books and also the flow research collective where we're a, a, a neurobiology research and training organization that studies flow and peak human performance. So that was sort of what all came next. And, you know, it, I bounced back and I sort of bounced back and forth between all these subjects still, I think. Yeah, no, thank you for breaking that down and it makes complete sense. And I, I like how you do have the background in the neuroscience and how you came into studying peak performance and going to flow, then going into sci-fi, then going into, you know, back to novels and nonfiction as well. So I thank you for breaking that down. 
let's circle back and talk a little bit about flow. So for those listening and saying, okay, I know what the word flow is, but what does flow mean to you and how can people sort of get to that state and apply that in sort of their daily life and not just peak performance, but just generally for sort of boosting motivation, creativity, grit, and productivity as well? I, by the way, I don't have a definition of flow. Science has a definition of flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform best. More specifically, that refers to moments of rapt attention and total absorption. You get so focused on what you're doing, so focused on the task at hand, everything else just starts to disappear. Our sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in our head diminishes, gets quieter. Time passes strangely. Occasionally, it'll slow down. You get a freeze frame effect. Mirror Danny has been in a car crash. Much more frequently, you get so engrossed in what you're doing that five hours go by in what feels like five minutes. And throughout um, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, tend to go through the roof. And, and yes, as you pointed out, there is a rat motivation, productivity, creativity, empathy. Uh, environmental awareness, which is our ability to see and perceive the, the natural world, um, et cetera, et cetera. All these skills are, are significantly amplified by the state. Um, so that's, um, that's flow. And, you know, from a, to answer the second half of your question, I always tell people, and this is sort of at the heart of the book, The Art of Impossible, peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all that's going on evolution shaped all human beings for peak performance on a simple level every human being can get into flow flow is optimal performance it cranks everything up all humans can get into flow all mammals most mammals can get into flow um and this is one of the most well-established facts in psychology at this point and you know we know flow underpins happiness and well-being and overall life satisfaction it's actually woven into the definition of those terms in positive psychology at this point. So it's become a really sort of deep portion of the fabric of our lives. And the question, the last part of your question, you wanted to know how can we can get more of it? That was the final portion. Um, now, this is obviously the work we do at the Flow Research Collective. Um, I said we're a research and training organization. On the research side, we are partnered with people like USC or Imperial College in London or organizations like Deloitte. And um, we obviously study peak human performance, right? So the neurobiology of peak performance of what's going on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best. And we use this information to train people. And we train sort of everybody from kind of US Navy SEALs and, you know, elite athletes through companies. I think right now we're working with uh, folks from Audi, Facebook, Accenture, a bunch of other companies like that, all the way to the general public. Um, so soccer moms in Indiana and insurance brokers in Mumbai and think, you know what I mean? Anybody like that. Um, and uh, it, the training, it's based on a bunch of different stuff, but at the center of it, the quick and dirty is one of the things that we've learned over the past 10, 15 years has been a, a real revolution in neuroscience, right? Thanks to more and more advanced brain imaging technology. We've been able to look deeper into the brain, figure out sort of where is flow coming from and what causes it. And what we now know is that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 or so that have been discovered, but that's only sort of where science is today. We're going to find many more. Maybe some of the ones that we've discovered are wrong or not quite exactly what we think they are. You know, it's an, ev it's an evolving field, but there are about 12 individual triggers. What it would take to drive me into flow or, or, or you into flow. And then, you know, there's 
group flow. It's a shared flow state. There could be interpersonal flow. This is me and you in a great conversation, right? This could be team flow, a brainstorming session where the ideas are bouncing all over the place. Could be communitas, which is group flow at scale. That's a crowd at a soccer match or at a football match or political rally or a rock concert, whatever sort of merges with the music and becomes one with the band, that sort of thing. That's known as communitas. Um, so, uh, and there are about 10 triggers that, that can push people into group flow. So that's the short, quick, quick and dirty answer to your question. No, awesome. Now, thank you for breaking that down into a little excellent summary on flow. Yeah, I think we can all, we all know what flow feels like we've all experienced flow in in you know in those moments of life and people are sort of chasing that so to sort of segue into another book you wrote called stealing fire for those who don't know it's how silicon valley the navy seals and maverick scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work you talk about non-ordinary states of consciousness can you break that down a little bit about stealing fire and what, what the book's about yeah stealing fire sort of built out of a lot of the work, as you do work in flows an altered state of consciousness, and you can't study altered states of consciousness without also learning stuff about dreams, which are another altered state of consciousness, or psychedelic experiences, another altered state, or meditative states, trance states. There's a sort of broad spectrum of non-ordinary states of consciousness, um, and it turns out putting ourselves into these non-ordinary states of consciousness, whether you're walking in with psychedelics or mindfulness meditation practices, or, you know, using flow states at, you know, at work or as an athlete, or, you know, as an artist, that, that it doesn't really matter which way you walk in. They have profound benefits for our health, our well-being, our psychology, our performance, on and on and on. Um, I happen to personally, be much more interested in a flow than a lot of these other non-ordinary states of consciousness. I do a lot of work with mindfulness and meditation as well, but flow tends to be the center of my focus. Um, but there's, you know, amazing work. We did a study uh, with Robin Carter, Larry Harris's lab at Imperial College London, um, where they're doing all the brain imaging work on psychedelics. And we looked at flow versus psychedelics for creativity and, and, and things like that. So those kinds of like comparative tools, if you're interested in solving a creative problem, is it better to reach for a psychedelic or a, you know, can I get into flow? Like those sorts of questions, which were totally nonsensical 25 years ago, totally ridiculous, are now underpinning a giant sort of revolution in how we live and we work. And, you know, the evidence for this, the evidence for these technologies going mainstream is overwhelming. So Stealing Fire basically looks at this, what used to be an underground revolution and now sort of is really mainstream. And when I say that, I, I always think of my friend, Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin runs MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research. So the use of MDMA for the treatment of PTSD in soldiers, for example, is that's been his fight for 30 years and things like that. And he always used to say, I, I've known him since the 90s. Um, I came in, I met him as a journalist. I covered the drug war, all sides of it. I come, I come from a, you know, a, a crazy neighborhood and I saw, you know, I saw everybody on all sides of the drug war and everybody lost. And I, I covered it as a journalist. And I met Rick early on, who was, you know, in the early nineties talking about psychedelic medicine and all the stuff that is a little name mainstream today. Um, but was crazy back then. And he said, you know, we got it wrong. It's not tune in, turn in, drop out. It's 
turn on, tune in, go to a bake sale. It's like this stuff should just be at the heart of mainstream culture as another tool we can reach for. And that's where it is, you know, 30 years later, but 40 years later, actually, um, some of those conversations. But uh, that's sort of what Stealing Fire looks at um, is the use of, you know, not ordinary states of consciousness in, in mainstream culture and business and society and things like that. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down. And yeah, I'm going through my own my own personal experiences, not only studying, you know, for the last sort of couple of decades on uh, these particular substances to step out beyond oneself or to, you know, stand outside oneself, because what happens is people with type A personality, OCD, ADD, you, you're so highly tuned in that sometimes you need to tune out with certain substances. So then you can tune back in even better and get more creative ideas. And I think having that balance of using those substances and, and trying different states of consciousness, I actually find the, the best flow state I've ever been in is during the day, a little bit of coffee, reading, studying, or a cup of tea, and then finding, you know, the two, three hours online or working or reading just, just goes like that. So I, I find flow is a, a, a much natural and better state than getting into an altered state of consciousness. With yeah, I, I, tend to, I tend to agree with you. I almost agree with you entirely, but um, I don't assume what works for me will work for everyone. Yeah, definitely. So. That, yeah, correct. Yeah. And you talk about all non-state of consciousness are more or less the same in the book and the shared neurobiology as well, like, you know, regular waking consciousness has a predictable and constant signature in the brain. I'm sure from your studies and understanding with neurobiology, what what is the main sort of differences neurologically with d different substances that uh, you take to get into flow, if, if that makes sense? Most non-ordinary states of consciousness, they're in their... There's a, there's a lot of exceptions here. There's a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna from a scientific perspective, people are gonna hate me for what I'm gonna to say, but it's not. It's pretty true. So we see a number of key things that happen in the brain. Uh, so when, first of all, when you talk about neuroscience and neurobiology and, and brain activity, you really want to talk about four things. You really talk about four things. So there's Neurochemistry and, and neuroelectricity, though nobody uses neuroelectricity, they, they use the term brain waves. Um, and this is basically how the brain talks to itself into the body. It either sends chemical signals or it sends electrical signals. And then there's neural anatomy and networks. Neural where in the brain something is taking place. Neural anatomy often refers to individual structures, the prefrontal cortex, the temporal parietal junction. Whereas networks would be the connections between the parietal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, and the temporal parietal junction kind of thing. What with networks, we just very rarely does something take place at one place in the brain. It usually takes place in a bunch of different places. Sometimes these places are hardwired together um, or they're functionally connected, which is a term that basically means they do work at the same time. Everybody's heard lately of the default mode network. Um, uh, which is sort of when we're in daydreaming mode, that sort of turns on and self-referential thinking is the default mode network. And some of those structures are hardwired together and mostly they just get active and do work at the same time. So we say they're functionally connected. So we're not gonna talk about normal waking consciousness too much, but let's just say that brainwave wise, when we're awake, when we're alert, you and I are having a conversation, brainwaves are in beta. It's a fast moving wave. It means awake, alert, paying attention. If it gets really fast and really jagged, high beta, that's anxiety. Underneath beta is a slower wave known as alpha. This is often linked with creative thinking or it's the brain in daydreaming mode. And below that 
is an even slower wave, a theta wave. This is sort of the signal for attention if it's coming out of the prefrontal cortex, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is most altered states take place in and around the border between alpha and theta. Normal waking consciousness is up around beta. This is definitely true in flow. In flow, this is sort of a baseline. Like you go to this alpha theta borderline, but you bounce all over. You'll jump up into beta, you'll jump around, but you'll come back to this baseline. It's pretty much true in most altered states of consciousness. There is a huge dump of five uh, potent neurochemicals that underpin flow. There's way more, but there's five kind of core feel-good chemicals that change how the experience feels. Dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, anandamide, and endorphins. Those chemicals tend to underpin most altered states of consciousness. There are differences. Psychedelic states and dreaming are very, very serotonin heavy states. They're, that's at the base of those states. And yet in flow states, serotonin is a lot less prevalent. It tends to show up a little bit at the beginning to determine how we get into flow. And at the end of a flow state, that really calm, peaceful feeling you get at the end of a flow state, that's partially serotonin. Um, but it's not super active in the rest of the state because uh, flow is predominantly a lot about dopamine and dopamine and serotonin are almost antagonistic in the brain. That one shows up, the other goes away kind of thing. That's not always true, but that's often true. But so there are differences as I'm pointing out, but that's the same. And then finally, um, in most altered states of consciousness, you see the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead, start to deactivate. This, we used to think it was the whole of the prefrontal cortex and the more of it that deactivated, the farther into an altered state you were. Now we know that's not true. It's what's called localized hypo, which means to deactivate, shut down, frontality, prefrontal cortex. And localized means, depending on what you're doing, before as you drop into flow or alter your consciousness, that tends to shape which structures stay active and inactive. But like, why does time pass so strangely in flow or in all altered states of consciousness? It's because time is actually a calculation. It's performed by a bunch of different brain structures in the prefrontal cortex working together. It's a network effect. And as this parts of the part of the brain starts to deactivate, and we could talk about why it deactivates and all that stuff if you want, but basically we lose, the network goes down and we lose our ability to separate past from present from future. So you're plunged into what researchers talk about as the deep now or the elongated present, that internal moment, or the like, you know, the this is when time slows down and one minute will stretch out into hours kind of thing. Um, or, you know, the front end of an awe experience where you look up at the night sky and it's overwhelming, you just get sucked into this like pause moment. That's um, that's what happens when this this prefrontal cortex deactivates. I've never heard someone break it down like that. Some of the notes I got from that was the end was you know time's a network effect, and if the network shuts down and your your brain can't piece together what's past or present and have that deep moment of now, so that was yeah that that was really really cool what you just said. Yeah, let's segue into one of the other books that you, you wrote, uh, The Rise of Superman. It's decoding the science of ultimate human performance. I know we touched on it before as well. That's very similar to flow, but in the book you you talk about, and one of the notes I took was the ultimate human performance. The choice is stark. It's flow or die. What does that mean? Well, so that ultimate human performance is a term that defines performance when life or limb is on the line. So if you're talking about flow in combat environments, uh, flow in, then this could be at war. There's a long literature on flow in war, actually. Um, there's a uh, flow in martial arts and, and combat sports um, or contact sports. And in action sports, 
what so Resume is really about that revolution in action sports, the 90s, the so-called era impossible, and where it come from and how did it happen and how did these athletes start using flow to drive performance up and up. That's that's sort of the question at the center of it. And I just lost your question. I was defining, what was your second question? What was the second after your question? Uh, yeah, it basically said in the book, it's a very stark reality. It's either flow or die. At the elite level in action sports, Athletes are either getting into flow states to do what they're doing um, in action sports, you know, when it's Alex Honnold free soloing El Cap or free soloing Half Dome. If he's not in flow, he is, the choice is he's going to die, right? You, you miss a hole if you drop out of flow. It's, um, it's a long fall to the valley floor, you know, in, in, in that sort of thing. So what we, what we were seeing and what was great about this from a research perspective, this was actually like, it sounds sexy, flow or die or whatever, but it was actually a research breakthrough. It's very hard to produce flow in research subjects automatically. A lot of different things have been tried. Some have worked better than others. We're at work on a bunch of different efforts using virtual reality to do this and a lot of different things like that. But um, how do you know your research subject is in flow is an interesting question. And I've never been thoroughly satisfied with the answer to it, but with action sport athletes as my research subjects, if they live through the experience, if they didn't end up in the hospital, you had a pretty good shot. They were in flow. So you knew, and then you could move forward that way. Now it is 10 years past the time I've written that book and our understanding of the neurophysiology of flow has increased to the point that like, that's no longer the only research method available, but um, it was very, very useful at the time. Talk about your new book, which is coming out if you want to talk about it, which is called The, the Devil's Dictionary. What is The Devil's Dictionary? It's a cyberpunk thriller. If I was going to define it, I'd say it's like two part cyberpunk thriller, one part climate fiction with a twist. And so here's the twist. Normally with, with cyberpunk and with climate fiction, you're dealing with dystopian futures, dystopian novels. What I was interested in, what the Devil's Dictionary really looks at, sort of big plot-wise, we can talk about what the actual plot is if you want, but like at a big level. I was interested in creating a world where the worst environmental crisis we were up against, climate change and species die-off, extinction, mass extinction, um, had been battled back, where humans had sort of won that. And this is a near-term future. Cyberpunk basically means near-term future thrillers, right? That's that's one of the difference. And usually they take place on planet Earth and they're not set out in outer space, so they're sci-fi, but it's um, near-term future. Um, I wanted a world where we'd beaten back these the climate change species die off. And I wanted to ask the question, if this is the case, what kind of shifts in society would be necessary to get us there? So that's the background to both Last Tango in Cyberspace and The Devil's Dictionary. Last Tango in Cyberspace was my first cyberpunk thriller of this. And this is the second one. It's the second one in a series, though you don't, they're totally separate books and you don't need to read one to understand the other. Um, but they both follow the same sort of protagonist on his journey through this world. So you're really asking some real deep questions and some real sort of questions and looking for answers in, in a form of a novel. Is that, is that correct? And pondering those profound questions. Uh, well, so I have, it's not just a novel. In a certain level, um, Planet Home, my book is small. It all started with a small furry prayer. 
which was my first book about the relationship between humans and animals. And it was, I, I believe, my publishers believe that I was sent on one of the last major book tours any author was sent on before the like book tour world changed and TED happened and thought leadership occurred, right? And it was because a small furry per animal books, there was this belief that you have to go out and connect with your audience to really make an animal book work. And I went on, a, it was like 42 cities in like 38 days or some ridiculous, like crazy thing. And it was interesting because the turnout everywhere I went, there were a lot of people there. Hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people coming out to meet me and talk about the relationship between humans and animals. And I started to realize that everybody I was talking to, wonderful people, amazing people, but they were all, I was preaching to the converted. They were already passionate about animals. They were animal geeks. They cared about plants and animals and ecosystems. And it was like I was, there was, the message wasn't going any farther than the people who already agreed with me. And from an environmental change the world perspective, that's not particularly useful. And that wasn't what I was interested in doing. So Planet Home came next, which was an effort to bring kind of environmental and ecological messages and, and messages is a wrong word, but like solutions focused thinking um, to a much wider audience, right? I, I always said when we started Planet Home, we haven't won until we have a show every night on Ve in Vegas on climate change. Like you can go see Britney Spears, you can go see the climate change review, then we've won, right? That, that was sort of now, Planet Home does a lot of other things, but that was one of one of its goals. I then picked up those same kinds of themes in Last Tango and Devil's Dictionary because I, you know, they're thrillers. They're the, both these books are a blast. They're super freaking. They're yeah, they're big idea books, but they're funny and they're really page turner, stay up late, can't put it down kind of stuff. But I put big environmental ecological themes at the center because I'm still trying to smuggle these ideas sort of into the heart of the mainstream and really kind of affect some change there. Yeah, yeah, cool. That that's really cool, and thanks for doing that as well. Um, uh, just, just circling back to uh, a small fur uh, furry prayer. Talk about the dog sanctuary. Is that that that's still around? And how did that that come to be? Can you tell the story about oh. Joy and the dogs and, and yeah. existential yeah. crisis oh. as well? God, like, do you want the long, medium, or short version? Medium, medium's good. Yeah, medium rare is good. All right. So, um, I had been running a bunch of nonprofits uh, along the way, and I met my wife, and she was running. She was running at that point a dog rescue in Los Angeles. She had deep history in the animal welfare world. She had done everything. She'd run shelters in Mexico. She'd uh, done run dog rescues before she was running a, a dog a dog rescue in los angeles small one and I, I met her and we decided by we let me the true story my wife's happy now and she's like look in dog rescue this is the shit that nobody wants to do nobody wants to do hospice care because the animals die nobody wants to do special needs care because you have to work with animals for two or three years before they may be adoptable nobody wants to work in low-income communities no one wants to work in communities with high instances of animal cruelty and nobody wants to work with small dogs especially chihuahuas even though in america they're the most second most euthanized dog second to pit bulls there's no funding so she was like this is like this is the end of a long train of misery. I want to do all of it. 
and I think I'm tough enough to take it, and are you? Not knowing any better and being challenged by my wife, of course, I had to say yes, and that was sort of where Rancho de Chihuahua came in, and that was uh, a dog rescue and a sanctuary that, that Joy and I operated for 14 years in Chimayo, New Mexico. Three years ago, we closed down the rescue portion and we moved the hospice care sanctuary to where we are now in northern Nevada, Lake Tahoe region. And we are launching the Buddy Sue project. We are focusing exclusively on hospice care. So big picture, there has been a movement across the boards in veterinary medicine and in sort of cutting edge, cutting edge animal care to double canine lifespan. And we are part of that movement, and we have been, we have a very effective sort of elder care uh, methodology that we've developed. It's, so when we say we do worse to the worst, it's, we'll get dogs from vets that have one eye, three legs, heart problems, cancer, and the vet will say, don't get too attached. This animal will be dead within a couple of months, and we'll get four or five or six more good years out of that vet using our protocol out of that animal using our protocol and like when i say good years like we take our dogs hiking in the back country off leash every day so they'll get four or five miles through the mountains so like it's they come back from the dead under this uh healing protocol so we want to really focus just on, on the hospice care facility we're trying to build a so you know, basically franchise of hospice care uh, pet canine facilities across america um, so that's what that's what we're doing now. So we got small for a little bit, but we're out to explode again and, get, and, and do and do a ton more work. That's really cool. That's uh, that's really cool. That's nice to hear. Um, I'm a dog lover myself, but yeah, not to the extent of doing that. So that's 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 fantastic. Yeah, I'm really really impressed on that. Just another one. You wrote a book to change gears as well. Uh, the West of Jesus, uh, a book on surfing. Is that right? Well, so that was my very first book, and it's called The West of Jesus Surfing Science and the Origin of Belief. So this was actually the book where I bumped into more flow as a, as a formal topic. You have to understand that back in the 1990s, when all this, this work started, right, before I had the term flow, um, and knew what I was looking at, I was looking at these export athletes and they were describing the, their experiences while they were performing at their best. And over and over and over, athletes kept saying things to me like, dude, I don't know, don't tell anybody, but when I'm surfing a wave, I'm like one with the wave or I'm one with the mountain. And this feeling of oneness with you know the universe kept showing up again and again and again. And I'm talking to these athletes about how are you doing the impossible? They're talking about like merging with the waves. Um, I was, uh, it was, I was talking to Laird Hamilton, actually, and he was using all this language as well. And I remember right after I, I left that conversation, uh, the man who became my mentor, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was a neuroscientist at the then at the University of Pennsylvania, he did the very first brain scans on Franciscan nuns and Tibetan Buddhists when they experience what's, for the, for the nuns, it's unia mystica, for the Buddhists, it's absolute unitary being, aka oneness with everything. So I called up Andy. And I, you know, and I said, look, I'm studying these action sport athletes who are doing the impossible and they keep talking about becoming one with the, you know, the ocean or the mountain or whatever. Do you think the same thing that we're looking at in athletes could be showing up in the nuns and the Buddhists that you're looking at? And we spent about a year sort of like piecing it together and working it out, figuring it out. And we started to realize that, yes, 
that they were the same thing. So the, all the work that was in stealing fire, we started to note when I, you know, hey, wow, these states are really similar. That was originally where it came from. I sort of walked in that door. And I, the West of Jesus is, um, is a really a book. It's a really fun book. But the question I wanted to know is why do people believe things? Right? Why do we start to believe things? Why, why do we keep believing in things? And, and how does that relate to kind of peak experiences and things like that and mystical experiences? And so that was where it, that was where all that work started. Um, I would say that it used to be, there was a flow trilogy. It was, uh, it was West to Jesus into, um, rise of Superman into, uh, stealing fire. But now there's a quartet because there's the art of impossible, which is flow. I love right. how it all unfolded, uh, in your life with all the books as well. And it really, really shows you with looking at the whole history of your books, how it sort of unfolds. But I think we're all searching for gold. I think the, the, the answer to your question, why are people believe what they believe and why they seeking what they're seeking? We're all trying to seek the gold and the alchemy, which is what is the matrix or what is life and how does it work? So everyone thinks they're going to find that secret and get into that state of, of, of sort of knowing. I don't know. That, that's my take. I'm still on the search. I'm still on the path of trying to work it all out and figure it out too. And I, and I know you are as well. Look, we probably run out of time. I know we can run over heaps more books, but uh, we'll sort of wrap it up through there. Uh, Stephen, for my audience uh, who like what they hear, uh, where can they find more about you? Uh, is it website or is it social media? Obviously your books are everywhere on Online, but where can they sort of connect with you and sort of find out more about yourself? StephenCotler.com, Flow Research Collective.com. So if you want me and my books, StephenCotler.com, Flow Research Collective, if you want to learn more about Flow and either website, the videos page, there's a million hours of free content on both of those websites on, you know, pretty much every, you know, every topic I've written about and much, much deeper. So yeah, it's one of the, oh, it's one, it's, yeah, great website. It's one of the best websites I've seen, but socially as well. Do you spend any time on Facebook, Instagram or YouTube or what's the, what's your main outlet? Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry. You asked a question. No, I, I'm, sometimes I'm on Twitter. Um, you can, I mean, you could get me through all those mediums. You can usually have conversations with me on, on Twitter. Um, more, more than on other mediums. So I, I, you know, all of them, uh, are paid attention to, but I uh, don't, I will tell you, I'm not great on social media. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'd rather be, I'd rather be doing shit in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Same. I'm terrible. Thank you for being a guest on the best book bits podcast and to my audience out there. Yeah, definitely check out Stephen's book. See it's uh, done a lot of great